Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so thankful for this assurance. And that Paul had this assurance after walking with you his whole life that he knew who he had believed and he was convinced that you were able to keep what he has entrusted to you until that day. Father, we have that assurance, those of us who have believed, because you have given us this faith, because you have shown us in your word that you are preserving us, and we strive to persevere in our faith. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to just have this assurance settled in our hearts so that we might be more profitable for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. And be seated. We are coming to our final uh, part of the assurance of salvation. This is the last session we're going to do. We've covered a lot of different things. And when you think about today, we're going to be looking at the false assurance of the unregenerate and the full assurance of the regenerate, wherever you stand in that one of those two areas there. Um, as I have said before, I spent about 10 years of my life with a false assurance that I was a believer. I had uh, gone to church most of my life. I walked the aisle. I said the prayer. I got baptized. And I thought I was saved. And I lived for the next 10 years for myself, obeying the desires of the flesh and of the world, and still thought if you would have asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. And yet, God showed me through his word that I was not. Part of that is through living with a believer who I married, and uh, I thought I was a Christian at the time when we got married. I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, this is all good. And then I saw Christ in someone, and Christ was not in me. And so, in God's goodness, he uh, took me to Ephesians 2 and showed me that such were some of you was who I still was. But he called me to repentance and gave me a faith to believe. And it changed everything. And then I have assurance. But as I worked through those things, and especially in seminary, of, of why did I think that I was saved? You know, we came to one study that we did uh, on the different views of sanctification that are taught by churches and denominations and seminaries and different things. And that helped me to kind of clarify why I thought I was a believer when I wasn't, when I compared those things with what God has said. And so I want to share some of those with you today, and that's why we have a chart in our notes on the views of sanctification in the back. And to walk through some of those and to help you to see maybe you've been exposed to some of these as well. And maybe they've given you a false assurance of salvation. And again, I'm not here to tell you whether you're saved or not. I'm not here. I'm not your fruit inspector. I'm here to help you to see what God has said so that you can be saved. And then when you die, you can be sure you go to heaven. And so walking through some of these things... You may also come to the point where you understand why you can't come to a point where you have full assurance because of something you've been taught, that you can't ever in this life come to that point. And so I want to help you with that and walk through that. This is how God has helped me. And then look at his word and look at what the church has done through the years 
so that we can have a full assurance or that we can be convicted that we have had a false assurance and that we might repent and believe. As we have looked at some different things, uh, today we look at false assurance of the regenerate versus the false assurance of the unregenerate. And we have, by way of review, again, that we looked at the doctrine of assurance of salvation is the divinely given confidence of the believer that he or she is truly saved, knowing you have faith in Jesus Christ and will go to heaven based on what God has said. Um, the Bible teaches us that we can have assurance of our salvation through an intellectual understanding of God's word and an experiential knowledge of the doctrines of regeneration, preservation, and perseverance. And we have found that in regenerations, the work of Holy Spirit creating a new life in a sinful person by which he repents and comes to believe in Christ. It's the doctrine of regeneration aids in our assurance of salvation because we can know the spiritual life we have was given to us by God and the faith we have was created in us by God. Just as we sang a while ago, this faith that God gave us that will never go away. Preservation, then, is the teaching that God's saving purpose and limitless power ensure the endurance of the elect to the end. And the doctrine of preservation, then, aids in our assurance of salvation because we can know that the power and purposes of God will never fail. If you look at Ephesians 1, it is God's will that predestining us, calling us, justifying us, all those things, Romans 8 as well. The prayers of Jesus will always be fulfilled. God, Jesus is praying that we would be kept, and he is interceding for us throughout our lives so that his prayers will be answered and we will be kept, and no one will snatch us from the Father's hand. The presence of the Holy Spirit also helps us as he is indwelling us and, and calling us back to, to holiness and giving us, reminding us of that faith that God has giving us, given us and, and pursuing righteousness. And so we have those things in perseverance that God is doing in us. And then the doctrine of perseverance, um, the teaching that those who are genuine believers will endure to the faith to the end being continually drawn back to that faith, as we said, in the midst of doubts and difficulties. And we saw that the doctrine of perseverance then aids in our assurance of salvation because we can know that perseverance is needed in a fallen world. We will struggle with sin. We will struggle with doubt. We will struggle with tribulations and difficulties. And that's part of living in a sinful world and in our sinful flesh still. And yet, we won't be perfect in this world, but we will pursue perfection and God will perfect us in the end but to know that even though we struggle we are still saved those of us who have been born again if we continue to struggle against sin and not just let it continue in our lives perseverance preservation is God's working through us so God is a part of it as well right Philippians 2 you work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is doing this with us. And then perseverance is experienced through obedience. We are persevering in the faith. We are pursuing holiness. We are practicing righteousness and obedience and those things like that. That then, as we do that, gives us experiential evidence that God is working in us because we want to not sin. We want to be pleasing to God. We make that our ambition. And so that gives us some assurance as we go through life that God has intended for us to have. And so we have the doctrine of regeneration, preservation, and perseverance. 
that help us. And so we have heard these truths and we believe in these truths. We believe the Bible teaches us that born-again believers can have assurance of salvation, that God will persevere them to the end and they will, God will preserve them to the end and they will persevere to the end with God's help with new hearts that desire and grow to, to grow in obedience and holiness and provide that experiential assurance that God is working in us. We've also considered briefly, last time, the, the views of the Arminian versus the Calvinist about God's will in these areas of saving faith. We look at Jude chapter 24, verse 24, where it says, God is able to protect us. And we found that Arminians teach that even though God says he is able to persevere, uh, preserve you to the end, this falls under God's desired will, which may or may not happen depending on man's decision. And then the Calvinists teach that when God says he is able to preserve you to the end, it falls under God's decreed or sovereign will, which will always happen. And we found that this falls in line with the rest of what the scripture teaches about God predestining and calling and electing and regenerating and justifying and sanctifying and glorifying believers. This is God's sovereign decreed will of salvation, and so therefore it is happening, and the fact that God is able shows that he is going to do what he has done. He will keep you to the end if you are regenerate. When you think about these things and the the contrast of the scriptures that we have seen, and it may help you to, to really think through it, God does not transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and then allow you to transfer yourself back out. He doesn't adopt you as a child of God and then allow you to return to being a child of Satan. It doesn't make sense. God doesn't cause you to be born again through no effort of your own and then allow you to make yourself unborn again. God doesn't indwell you with his Holy Spirit and then take his spirit from you. God doesn't make you into a new creation and allow you to make yourself back into an old creation. God doesn't promise you the glories of heaven and allow you to choose to go to hell. God doesn't give you a faith to believe in his son's death for your sin and then let you choose not to believe that anymore. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up with what God has said. And so therefore, you cannot lose your salvation if God is preserving you to the end. And so we briefly looked at those things and the contrast between Calvinism and Arminianism in an effort to bring some biblical clarification to why you may have been taught assurance is not possible. And today we're going to look at some of the additional movements within the church, which have caused a great amount of confusion in regards to the assurance of salvation for believers. We're going to look at them under the heading of the full assurance of the regenerate and the false assurance of the unregenerate. The verses that we have had before, 1 John 5.13, we can have full assurance, and God wants us to have full assurance. He writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And yet, he also wants us to be careful that we don't have a false assurance, where he says in 2 Corinthians uh, 13.5, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? 
And so God wants us to know that we have assurance and have full assurance if we are saved, if Christ is in us. And he wants us to test ourselves to see if we have a false assurance that Christ is not in us, that we're not regenerate and we are not saved. And we're going to look more specifically today in this context of how our view of sanctification relates to our assurance of salvation. How our view of sanctification relates to our assurance of salvation. And within this, our main focus will be on the progress of our sanctification. The time in which we are persevering in our faith. The time we live in today. Persevering in our faith. In regards to the assurance of salvation, the truth of progressive sanctification in our faith, that we are a born-again believer, has been distorted has been denied or simply just left out of the teachings of many movements within evangelicalism over the years. And when I think of evangelicalism, that's just a general term. I don't know what that means today, but in the past what it meant. The people who were you know, Protestant or, you know, under, not, not Catholic, and, and they evangelize and proclaim the gospel. Um, most of us would be of some evangelical uh, denomination or belief, but that means a lot of different things today, so it's, we have to be careful there. But we're not going to be looking at things like, like Catholicism or some of the cults or some of the sects, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and things like that. We're not looking at them. We're looking at those who would proclaim the same essentially the same gospel as we do. And as we look at some of these people, you can understand that they have the same gospel in general. You can get saved through their ministry. Some of them would be brothers in Christ, but they have gone astray when it comes to sanctification. And so we're going to be looking at those things. Uh, Because of these errors, because of these distortions and things like that, many church-going people have been deceived into the false assurance of salvation. And still others have continued to struggle to find their assurance of salvation who are truly saved. And so my hope is that through a better understanding of how progressive sanctification has been taught or left out by some, you may see where you or others have been, excuse me, misled in the past, even as I was. And so I hope that this is helpful today. So we're looking today at how our view of sanctification results in our assurance of salvation. As one man put it well, preservation designates the work of God in sanctification, keeping the believer in a state of belief, while perseverance is sanctification viewed from the perspective of the believer himself. At regeneration, we receive a new heart and the new desires to please God, and that desire moves us forward in our sanctification and produces perseverance in our faith. And so that's a nice way to put that in how we relate this perseverance of the saints, our assurance, with our sanctification. And I didn't want to add on another doctrine. We've got preservation and regeneration and perseverance and assurance and things like that. But hopefully this is helping to, to simplify some of those things and to get all of our ologies in the right order and things like that. And hopefully it's simple and clear. That's the goal. Um, sanctification, if you need a definition there, is to be set apart from sin. That's the simple aspect of it. And it is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. So that's the the sanctifying. It comes from the word hagios, which is a Greek word, and that's the correct misinterpretation and mispronunciation of that word. 
It means to be holy, to be set apart, and, and things like that. So it's to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. And we are progressively being set apart from sin and to God as we work through life. And ultimately, we will be completely set apart from sin and to God in our glorification. And we'll see that today. All right, so I think my, looks like my PowerPoint's going to be off a little bit here. So, first, we can know that there are three aspects of salvation that help us to work through, three aspects of sanctification that help us to think about this rightly. The first one is, we have been sanctified, right? We have been sanctified, and we don't want to confuse that with that we are being sanctified and we will be sanctified, right? So, we have been sanctified, and that is something that the Bible teaches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Chapter 6 and verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so this is past tense, right? You were regenerated, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, my slide is not there, but as he begins to speak to the church there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so there's an aspect where we have been sanctified. And if we understand the simple definition of that as being set apart, then, oh, we have been set apart for Jesus Christ. Not that we are perfect and holy and righteous, right? But we have been set apart. And when we think about this, it is a past tense, right? We have been declared righteous. It is a positional sanctification, if you will. We have had Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We are then justified in God's court of law, right? So it goes with justification. We are declared sanctified. We are sanctified in Christ. It is a past tense, and we are saved from the penalty of sin because of that, right? And so we are saved from its penalty, and we're going forward. We've been born again. We've been justified. It is the act of being set apart forever as God's own possession and declared holy by Christ's justifying work, okay? And so that begins at regeneration. It's part of justification, and it is being declared righteous and holy by Christ's justifying work. Someone wrote this, it is helpful to think of sanctification, sanctification in terms of God's work to remove sin from our lives, making us more like Christ. At the very moment that a sinner puts his faith in Christ to be saved, God separates that person from the control of Satan and frees that person from slavery to sin. God does this as he places the person instead in Christ. You might say that the person, person's position changes when they put their faith in Christ. Paul writes about God separating us from slavery to sin and Satan bringing us into the wonderful rule of Christ in our lives. The very instant that someone puts their faith in Christ for salvation, that person moves. No longer is that person in a place where sin and Satan rule, but is now in the place where Christ rules in his glorious kingdom. Christ reigns in our hearts, as Pastor Randy has taught us, right? And so this is our positional sanctification, and the relationship of positional sanctification to our progressive sanctification is another scenario that we have to work to as we think about how we grow in that position that we have been granted. We have been declared to be righteous, but we know that we are not righteous. 
We still sin. We still struggle. We still read the Bible and we're convicted more and more of our sin. We want to pursue holiness and we pray, Lord, I want to be more like Christ and I want to be more holy. And what does he do? He shows us more and more of our sin. And we just get discouraged and we get broken down. It's like, oh my goodness, am I saved or not? But understand that that's part of the process. I can't grow in holiness if I am not shown where I need to grow where my sin is. And so when you pray to be more like Christ and to grow in sanctification and holiness, know that it's going to be maybe overwhelming when God shows you your sin, but he is going to help you to persevere through that and preserve you to the end because he wants you to be holy as much as you want to be holy. And so just thinking about that, it exposes that we want to be righteous even though we know we are not. So according to God's perfect standard, we are much less than righteous, though we long to overcome any and all sin in our lives. And so God tells us that we are not only sanctified in the past, but we are being sanctified. We have been sanctified, and we are being sanctified. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verses 3 through 7, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. For God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now, if sanctification was something that was just granted to us and we don't have to deal with it anymore, and there's no progression in that sanctification, then why would God say, you need to work out your salvation You need to, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you need to do something. You need to learn how to abstain from sexual immorality. You do that. You need to know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. This is God's will for us that we actively pursue moving away from things like sexual immorality. That's part of our sanctification. And so we are growing in those ways. We are being sanctified. Romans chapter 6 and verse 19 says this, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And so as we are persevering in our faith and as we are striving to overcome sin and lawlessness and impurity and we're giving our members of our body over to righteousness, a slave to righteousness instead of slaves to sin, then the result then is growing in sanctification. We are no longer doing something that we did before. If we were, had sinful anger and we want to work on that and God shows us all the places in the Bible where it's sinful and James says, Be angry, or, uh, James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Oh, I want to produce that righteousness. I want to grow in sanctification in that area and so I look at how I can overcome that sinful anger and then God helps me to grow and helps me to change and I am working on that and how I respond and how I do those things. Does that make sense? And so... Result, when we work at those things and we persevere, the result is more sanctification. And people look at you and haven't seen you in a few years and like, wow, that used to make you horribly angry and you would have punched the wall. And now you're like, calm, what is this? This is God's work in me to, for his glory. And so those are wonderful things that God has given us. So we are sanctified, we're declared righteous, we are saved from the penalty of sin. 
But we are also being sanctified presently. We're continuing to grow in sanctification. We are free. We are continually being freed from the power of sin, right? We're, we're set apart for God. We're set apart for righteousness. We're no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. And now we can overcome the power of sin in our life because we are with God, right? And so it's progressive, right? So we're freed from the penalty of sin, and then we become freed from the power of sin as we are growing in our sanctification. This is where we live. This is where we are right now. And this is the main thing we need to be looking at. It is a process that is pursued, right? It is that process of being progressively set apart from sin toward moral conformity to the image of Christ. It is a process. And so, understand that you will not accomplish that in this life. Practice does not make perfect, as one of my children very clearly helped me to see one time. Practice makes progress. And we are going to progress in Christ-likeness. And he will perfect us in the end, not in this world. And so, when you're working on something or you're doing something or whatever, and your perfection is like, oh, it's just not perfect. It will never be. Because you live in a fallen world. And you are a fallen person. But it can be nice. We think about that when we're putting up caulk on a window or something like that. And you look up close and like, oh my goodness, it's a mess. But you step back and you're like, oh, it looks great. That's all everybody's going to really see. Nice. Drywall, I could find cracks in every room in every house. But you step back and you're like, it looks good. So we're good. Not perfect, but it's progress and it looks better than it did before. That's how I want to be in Christ. I'm not perfect, but I look better than I did before with God's help. So that's, that's nice. So that's what we do, and that's God's grace to us. You know, he, he wants us to just continue on, say, good job, you're getting better, that's good. Enjoy that, enjoy my grace, enjoy the peace that you see, the assurance of salvation that God is doing something in your life. And so we are being sanctified, and that's a wonderful help in our assurance of salvation. And also, as we said, we can know that we will be sanctified, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Amen. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are going to be saved from the presence of sin. We are going to be finally sanctified. We're going to be fully sanctified, which is our glorification, right? Final sanctification is the same as glorification. Preservation culminated. It's wonderful. Perseverance culminated. We will no longer sin in our new glorified bodies and in the presence of our holy God. And who does that? The God of peace himself is the one who sanctifies us entirely in the end at Christ's return. It's not something that we can do or that's something that we are a part of. This is what God does for us. Philippians says this as well in Philippians chapter 3 about our new body. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It's the work of God giving us that new glorified body, no sin nature, no sinful heart, and away from the presence of sin. How wonderful will that be? To be in the presence of God. 
And so as God has planned not only to save us from the penalty of sin through justification by faith, God has also planned to save us from the power of sin as he separates us unto himself in his son, making us more and more like Christ. And here God's work is not declared to declare us righteous, but to make us righteous. We are going to be made righteous. And so God works as we continue on in our progressive sanctification to remove our sin, to help us to make us more like his son as we live today, looking forward to that day when we will be entirely sanctified. But in the process, as we grow in perseverance, as we continue to be sanctified through the word and through our obedience, it makes us holy and happy people that he planned us to be on this earth so we can have a wonderful testimony for him. It's progress, not perfection. And this increases throughout our life. It continues to grow. We are progressively being more and more sanctified. As we begin to look at some of the charts, we want to see how some of these views have been distorted. The first thing that we see is that on the chart is the views of sanctification, is the Reformed view, or you would say the our view. You have some names there, people like John Murray, John Owen, J.I. Packer, Hokema, even MacArthur and other Reformed beliefs, we would hold to the uh, Reformed view. Uh, one of the key issues of the Re- Reformation was justification by faith alone. We understand that. And this also led to some clarification between justification and sanctification, because the Catholic teaching was that justification was by sanctification. Justification was by sanctification. As you worked out your salvation, as you did good works, as you worked in obedience, then you progressively earned more justification, but you could never earn enough and be sure, and so there is no assurance of salvation. You do good works for your salvation. But justification, as we said, is being declared righteous by God with Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Sanctification is that gradual process of becoming righteous, right? And so the Reformed view, as we have been talking about, is sanctification begins at regeneration. As the chart has it there, the Reformed perspective in your notes, sanctification begins at regeneration and justification. It progresses through life, and it is progress, not perfection. It is the believer and God working together in this, and perfect sanctification only at Christ's return. So that is the Reformed perspective. The teaching reflects accurate Bible interpretation, a great uh, historical, grammatical, literal interpretation or normal interpretation of Scripture, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Assurance of salvation is possible to those who are regenerate and persevering in the faith, as we have said. God's preserving us. We are persevering. We are regenerate. And the gospel, then, is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This can lead to a full assurance of salvation, as we have seen, and that's what God would have us to believe. And so here you have the Reformed position, but it never expects or encourages some kind of post-conversion decision prior to progressing in your sanctification, which is what we will see many of the other views hold, such as Wesleyan perfectionism. That's the second one there, Wesleyan perfectionism. 
So John Wesley, the founder of Methodist, the Methodism, Methodist Church. You also have people like John Fletcher, the Nazarene, Salvation Army, Holiness Movement, Charles Finney, Christian Missionary Alliance. A lot of those places hold to this Wesleyan perfectionist view. And their view is sanctification happens sometime after faith in Christ by an instantaneous transforming work of the Holy Spirit called the second work of grace or the second blessing or total surrender. If you have been a part of a Methodist church or something like that, you may have experienced that. Following the second blessing then, experience, Christians enter the sphere of entire sanctification or Christian perfection as they would call it or even sometimes calling it perfect love. This removes inherited sin, they say, eradicates the carnal nature, enables Christians to live without willful sin, and fills the heart with perfect love for God and man. Wow, that would be something. But that's not what the Bible teaches, right? The other thing is, it is only received by those who seek for it. You've got to seek out this second blessing. Traditional uh, Pentecostalism holds to the same view, but they call the second baptism, the, the second blessing, the baptism of the Spirit. Or the second baptism of the Spirit, something like that. They say that entire sanctification can happen in this life. Entire sanctification. Now, Wesley goes on to say things like, well, not perfect like God is perfect, but if the Bible says we are able to be perfect as God is perfect, or we're, we're called to be perfect as God is perfect, then we should be able to attain to it in some way. So then he redefines what sin is based on misinterpretations of things like Romans 7 where Paul says, you know, it's not me, but it's, but it's uh, sin in me that's sinning, and that's a, a misinterpretation of that. And what he says is a Christian is so far perfect as not to commit sin, as long as he believes in God through Jesus Christ and loves him and is pouring out his heart before him, he cannot voluntarily, consciously, deliberately transgress any command of God, either by speaking or acting what he knows God has forbidden. And it's trying to make that work, but it just doesn't line up with Scripture. He says, since governed by pure love, the holy sanctified saint is freed from pride, self-will, and unbelief. I've talked to many people about this, like this, who believe this. They think they don't sin anymore. They think that they don't have pride and they don't have self-will, which is evidenced by the fact that they don't sin anymore. They say they don't, don't think they don't sin anymore. And it is a terrible deception, and it is so confusing. It does not reflect an accurate interpretation of Scripture, because it calls into question passages like 1 John 1, 8, right? If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so you have people in these churches who maybe are true believers and then they read the Bible and things like that and it's like, how, how can this be? I'm still sinning. Maybe I haven't reached that point of entire sanctification. Maybe my sin is constantly before me and, and I don't know how to deal with that and so maybe I'm not there. How can I have assurance of salvation or that I'm even saved? It's, it's a sad, sad, terrible thing. 
So there's no assurance of salvation. No assurance at all. And part of that, even though there is this entire sanctification thing that he teaches, he says believers possess freedom of will, namely the power to choose good and evil and deliberately depart from grace. There is no spiritual state, even entire sanctification, from which one cannot fall and be lost. The believer who takes eternal security for granted grows little and little slacker till ere he long falls again into sin from which he cannot be cleaned or escaped. And he wakes up one day in hell. He did not believe in God's preservation of the saints, even though that is very clear in the text. So there's no assurance because I'm still the same person I was, and most of the professing believers in my church aren't very Christ-like either, and so I don't know what to do with what the Bible says. So it often leads to a false assurance of salvation as well. Those who think they had this experience, they had this entire sanctification experience, they have this crisis moment or whatever it is, and like, oh, this is it, you know, and Lord help me, and, and now I'm good. I don't sin anymore. Now I'm going to do good works, and a lot of things they do is the social gospel, doing all these good works to kind of keep ourselves going, and it really becomes a works-based salvation. If I continue to do these things and show this perfect love for God and men, then I am uh, continuing to have assurance of salvation based on my works. And the gospel may answer some of that. Put your faith in Christ. And then seek the second blessing. Christians may not see change in their lives until that second blessing. And so that's why when you look at the chart, you see them over here. And you look at your life before Christ, right? Before Christ. Let me see if I can get a little pointer up here. Does that work? Oh, maybe. Laser pointer. Ooh. All right, up here, right? So before Christ, you're flatlining, you could say, right? There's no spiritual life, nothing going on. And then you come to Christ, and the Reformed view is you're moving in sanctification. You're growing. It's not perfect, but there's progress. You have highs and lows, and things are going. Well, here, you put your faith in Christ, this first work of grace, and nothing has changed. You're, you're flatlining in your Christian walk. So you're probably still dead in your sin, in your transgression, Right? But then you come to this point of total surrender, and you reach the state of Christian perfectionism, and then you don't have to try. It's the second worth of grace, faith in the Holy Spirit, things like that. And so why keep trying? I'm already there. But the problem is here. The Bible says once you're a believer, then things will grow. You will grow, and you will change, right? Another version of this is the Keswick teaching, as we will see. And it's Keswick instead of Keswick. There, it's an English thing. It began in meetings in Keswick, England in about 1875. In America, it's the Victorious Life Movement. It was founded by an Anglican and a Quaker, uh, Robert Wilson, F.B. Meyer, Andrew Murray, Hannah Smith, Watchman Nee, Ian Thomas, R.A. Torrey. Those guys like that would hold to this view. And what they hold is experiential sanctification at a crisis moment, sometime after uh, accepting Christ, leading to a total surrender to Christ as Lord. It's the idea of let go and let God. You ever heard that one before? Stop using that term. All right. The, the point is this. They're saying step one is surrender. 
after you have been saved and after you continue to say you're a believer, you're going to church and stuff, you come to a point where you have this crisis experience, similar to the Wesleyan thing. You have a crisis experience and you surrender is step one. That's let go. It is at this point that Christians completely give themselves to Jesus as their master. Letting go includes surrendering to God every habit, ambition, hope, loved one, and possession, as well as oneself. Victory over sin that involves effort is merely a counterfeit victory. So you're not working out your salvation. Victory over sin that involves effort is merely a counterfeit victory. And then the second part is faith. So surrender and then faith. Let God. Let go and then let God. After this step, God is obligated to keep believers from sin's power. And so we come to a crisis moment. I surrender everything to God. We've heard this all kinds of times. And and we should surrender our lives to God. And we understand those things like that. We're totally devoted to him as our Lord and master. But then we work at persevering instead of saying, well, now any work that I do is I really didn't turn it over to God for him to do it for me. But you see you still struggle with sin, and so is it God's fault? Is that heresy? And then that moves into all kinds of things with the uh, psychological movement and things like that. And so sin's not my fault now, and if I sin, it's not sin in me. It goes back to that same kind of a thing. And so you don't have an assurance of salvation. Results from this uh, experience is victory over indwelling sin and a higher level of Christian living. Um, perfect sanctification, they don't believe you can be perfectly sanctified here like the Wesleyans, but perfect sanctification only at Christ's return. The teaching does not reflect accurate Bible interpretation. It calls into question passages like Romans 10.9, right? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved, right? This is how you're saved. You confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. That's at the cross, not later in life, which is evidence that when these people come to these points, that's probably when they may have gotten saved. The assurance is possible if you let go and let God. Now it's not me sinning anymore, and so I can be assured of my salvation. Often leads to a false assurance of salvation. We can understand why, right? Because I'm not doing what God has called me to do. I'm not persevering in my faith. I'm just putting my, my faith, my hope of assurance based on what somebody told me to do about having an experience or saying a prayer about Jesus or as the chart says there, I'm accepting Christ and then everything's fine and then later on I'm going to have this uh, crisis moment and then I'm going to be let go and let God and everything's going to be fine. So my assurance is based on what man has said, the traditions of men, rather than what God has said. The gospel, accept Jesus as Savior. Just accept him as Savior, you're good to go. What about Lord? Well, that's later, right? No. And so that comes to the Schaeferian view, if you will. The last view there, the Schaeferian perspective. And that is the teaching of Lewis Sperry Schaefer, across town here from Dallas Theological Seminary. He was one of the co-founders there. This is probably the dominant thing that has influenced most of us if you have lived in what was formerly known as the Bible Belt, right? This is where we get altar calls. This is where we get all kinds of things like that with Charles Finney and Billy Graham and and all of those things like that where you just accept Jesus as Savior but later accept Jesus as Lord, which begins the sanctification process. 
And their teaching is, all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. Well, that's true. But other places it says, all you have to do is repent. All you have to do is repent. And repentance and faith are the same thing, right? They're two sides of the same coin, if you will. Not the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. You believe. You repent. You, Jesus said his first, got, his first presentation of the gospel, he says, repent and believe. Right? Now, they would say that because you're you know, an unbeliever, has no heart for God, he can't repent. He can't confess his sin. He can't do those things, and so, therefore, he can't repent. And so you're adding works to the gospel. You're asking them to change and then believe in Christ. But as we know from our study of of the assurance of salvation, regeneration gives us any desire to turn to God. We were dead in our sins. We had no heart for God to even believe. Dead people can't believe or repent. But in this process of salvation, in the process of regeneration, God gives us a new heart. The Bible is no longer foolishness to us. The gospel is presented. We then repent. We turn from our sin. We see ourselves as sinners. We see God as holy. We see Christ as the Savior. And we see that we have no hope but to believe in his finished work on the cross for our sin. And then we do that and God gives us that faith to believe in Christ and be saved. And so we turn from living for ourselves, we turn to Christ through God's amazing work in us, and then we believe. And then we have a lifestyle of repentance and faith. We continue to have faith, we continue to repent. And that's how we go forward, right? And a lot of this is attempting to justify why professing Christians have no evidence of salvation in their life after all of these Things that uh, he was involved in with Schofield and stuff and going around on all these uh, end of the Second Great Awakening, all of these big evangelistic meetings of D.L. Moody and all these others and, and, and uh, Charles Finney and later with uh, Billy Graham and things. And, and things like that where all of these people are making a profession of faith in Christ and yet where are they? And their lives aren't changing and the churches aren't growing. And part of that is just the manipulation process of that, but they tried to justify it uh, biblically, and so they went to the two classes of believers, right? So you have the carnal and the spiritual, and they're taking that from Corinthians. And so you have the carnal one, um, who is one who is, um, how did he put it, let's see, he's the one who is, is... a believer, but he's still living for the world, and he hasn't made Jesus his Lord, and so he's kind of, uh, what does this chart say? He's the defeated Christian. He's the carnal man, and then you have the Christian or the spiritual man who is a believer, who's living for the Lord, who has fruit and things like that, and so he's taking Corinthians and taking it out of context and saying, this is why these people who have professed faith in Christ show no fruit in their life. And they're not growing in sanctification because they're the carnal ones. And later on, they will grow, or maybe they won't grow, but they're still saved because Paul is calling them brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they tried to justify it in that way. But that's not what that passage is about. The passage is about believers who are still on the milk, and they're not growing. And he says he calls them to grow, to repent, to change, to work in those things, and we can get to that. We don't have time. That's why I'm kind of skimming over that right now. But that's, that's what he's looking at, is the difference between a carnal and a spiritual uh, Christian. Um, one of the issues with not having repentance is that the, he, you know, the 
Schaefer went into dispensationalism, did a great job on a lot of things like that. Whether you're covenantal or definitional, that's, that's irrelevant. You can still be a brother or sister in Christ. Um, but the issue was, he was focusing on the big issue of the church has not replaced Israel. And that was a big thing in dispensationalism, and he's working through that. Well, he got to the point when it comes to understanding the gospel and do people have to repent and believe, he moved to the direction of, well, Israel was the only one who was called to repent before they were saved. And so repentance is not a part of the gospel. Israel and Jews in the New Testament were called to repent before they believed in Christ. And so that was for them. That's a different dispensation, all these things like that, and trying to make that work. But then when you look at those things, what do you do with um, passages like, that's the first, that's 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 13. 15, 3, there we go. Acts eleven eighteen, where it says, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance. They quieted down, glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And so God is the one who is granting repentance, and God is the one who is giving eternal life to the Gentiles. And so repentance is part of the gospel. And so we call people to repent and believe just like Christ did, just like Peter did, just like Paul did at the gospel. And so that is what Schaefer was talking about. And so, excuse me, I'm going to slow down here because I'm running out of time. I don't want to auction all this off. So assurance is possible for anyone who accepts Jesus as Savior. Okay? That's what they teach. It's once saved, always saved. Assurance is possible. Wolford, one of the DTS guys, says, A holy life is possible only by the grace of God and the enablement that God has provided for every Christian. The ultimate sanctification of believers in heaven is assured, but Christians do not automatically experience sanctification on earth simply because they have been made new creatures in Christ. End quote. He says, Wesley is right that subsequent to the initial act of being born again and receiving salvation in Christ, there is normally a later act of the will in which individuals surrender life to the will of God. This is an initial act of recognizing the lordships of Jesus Christ and the right of the Holy Spirit to control and direct the life of a believer. An initial act after salvation. You accept Jesus as Savior. You accept Jesus as Lord. But if you don't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior... You don't get him as Savior. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. 64 times in the New Testament. That's what his name is. That's what he is called. Is he the Lord? Yes. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's counting the cost. It's denying yourself. It is repenting of your sin. All of those things go into that. I have a new master, a new Savior, a new Lord, a new authority over my life. And so, you can't accept Jesus as your Savior and not accept Him as your Lord. And so, if you have been taught that, and you've been confused, and maybe you think you're a believer because you said a prayer about Jesus one time, and nothing has changed, maybe you need to test yourself, see if you're in the faith. If Jesus is not your Lord, then He is not your Savior. I thought he was my savior. I said a prayer about Jesus. 
their gospel. So this often leads to false assurance, as we know. The gospel is believe in Christ and trust him, and you will be saved. Do not ask anyone to repent or accept Jesus as Lord. That is clearly stated. And that has come out in many different ministries and many different aspects of uh, things that have followed in that line of thinking as well. And some of you have been exposed to that, whether it's a children's ministry or whether it's an evangelistic thing. And it's that coercion. And you see the, the, the similarities between all of these, right? It's you've made some kind of profession of faith in Christ. You've done something here and, and you don't grow. And you come to another point where it changes. You come over here. You're not growing. You say a profession of faith. Now it's let go and let God. And, oh, you come over here and you accept Christ as Savior. But then later you accept him as Lord. And then they'll say... Progressive sanctification happens then. But the reality is, this is when someone got saved. And I've heard testimonies like that here in the waters of baptism where you say, well, I thought I was saved. I said a prayer about Jesus. And then, you know, I lived a life and I wasn't really rebellious or this like that. Grew up in the church. And then I started living for the Lord. And then I repented. And then I was saved. I've heard those testimonies over and over again. And it's been mine. And so many of us have been exposed to this kind of teaching And so you can have assurance of salvation based on the fact that you have been born again, that God has regenerated you, you have that change in your heart, that you have put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you then see God is preserving you to the end and you believe that, and you are persevering as God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are striving for holiness, you're convicted of sin, you want to overcome that, and you continue to grow. Do you struggle? Yes. Do you get sometimes caught up in something that you just can't hardly get out of? Yes. Why do we have biblical counseling in the Bible? Because of that. Does someone get to the point where they're just in sin and we go to them and we tend to rebuke them? Yes. That's what church discipline is about. And if he repents, you've won your brother. He is a brother who was struggling in sin, who God is preserving to the end. And we are part of that, helping him to persevere. But if he doesn't, you treat him like an unbeliever. And that's the same thing for people you have known who have, you think, well, you know, he looked like a believer, he acted like a believer. Maybe he was in a pastor at one time and then he just fell off the truck. Well, I don't know. We go to them, we tentatively rebuke them, we pray for them, we call them to repentance, whatever it is. But if they don't, then maybe they were never saved. But maybe they're struggling and we continue to do what God has called us to do in that and we gather the strays. So God does that for us and he provides that for us, and we're thankful, too, that someone's going to come to us and say, hey, Fred, what's going on here? You look like you're kind of falling off the truck. We need to come by and pick you up. Are you saved? What's going on, right? And so we work through those things, right? So how you view our view of sanctification relates to our assurance of salvation. Our view of sanctification can lead us to a full or a false assurance of salvation. And so the questions, you know, what about someone who has been a Christian but left the faith? We go to them if we can. Someone who professed to be a Christian but shows no spiritual fruit? We go to them and talk to them about that and we help them. Paul just keeps telling them again and again, where's the fruit? Show your fruit. Keep working out your salvation, doing these things. We want to go to them. And those who profess to be Christians but live in unrepentant sin, we have Matthew 18, to go to them. We go to them. You don't wait for the elders. If your brother's in sin, go to him. Tentatively, work with that, all right? So there's assurance of salvation. So the doctrine of assurance of salvation, then, is a divinely given confidence that the believer, he or she, is truly saved. 
We teach, the Bible teaches that we can have assurance of salvation through an intellectual understanding and experiential knowledge of the doctrines of regeneration, preservation, and perseverance. And we'll go through those. And then you come to Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to keep, make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, both now and forever. I hope that's helpful. And if you want some more of the notes that I skimmed over, don't hesitate to ask. I'm happy to provide those for you. But I hope this has been helpful. And most of all, I just hope that you come to that subtle point where you can know that you're saved. And if you're not, that you would repent. And you would turn to Christ and find forgiveness because you need it. We don't want you to spend eternity in hell. We don't want you to get to heaven and go before Christ and him to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I'm going to close in just a minute. Here's my testimony and maybe it can be yours. I'm not going to give you a sinner's prayer. Like Paul, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now that the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.